And open up your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 34. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 34, we'll likely only get through the first half of this chapter tonight. The uh, last half is in my Bible, though, if the Lord carries this a little faster than I thought we would. But it is a difficult subject that we deal with tonight. The title of the message is Dinah Defiled. Dinah Defiled. And we'll just read the first four verses before we jump in here. Uh, as, I, uh, as I mentioned, I, I don't plan to get faster or further into this chapter than what this outline has for us. This is not a subject we ought to race through. But there's a lot to learn about family in this book of beginnings, in Genesis itself. Uh, we have so far seemingly run the entire gamut of what the Bible has for us concerning family. I would like to just remind you if it was that important that the first book of the Bible covers it so vividly, so thoroughly, it's probably something we ought to give consideration to as far as our stewardship of our families even today. The first four verses, Genesis chapter 34, starting in verse 1, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel, and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider again this, uh, this family, what we've seen thus far, remind our hearts, Father, that Satan indeed knows the promised seed is in this household. He knows he, he must stop it, and the only way to stop it is to get in. Help us to understand, Father, that it's not always the sinfulness necessarily, specifically the sinfulness of man that leads to this sort of thing, this, um, this concept of rape or this concept of taking and pillaging, um, that we live in an exceedingly wicked world, and even our own imaginations are only evil continually. Help us to see ourselves not as better than those involved in this chapter, but rather much in need of a Savior, much in need of a healing, of a restoration, of a being made whole, that we not be left to ourselves to try and find wholeness in this world. Help us, Father, to truly value holiness instead, to truly value uh, the concepts of parenting that we've seen so far, that we might understand this situation and, and take every warning possible, that we might do better because we know better, according to your word. We ask, Father, again, your blessings on this message, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The phrase, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, comes to mind once more. We see that phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, folks in Temperance, Michigan, would have argued that was probably my favorite verse. I said it a lot. They had me as their pastor during a season in which the Lord was really working on us in regards to conviction, uh, things that we as a family were involved in that we needed to come out of, television and certain other things that we shouldn't have been watching in our homes, um, and just before that, Christmas and Easter and all those things as well. 
what do we know about the situation? I, I think it's probably a natural thing for our flesh to immediately try to figure out how did Dinah get herself in this situation? But I don't know that that's a fair assessment for us to make immediately. The only thing we know of Dinah thus far is who her parents are and the fact that she went out to see the daughters of the land. I don't think we can say simply it's Dinah's fault. We don't know what she wore, how she dressed, or what her actions or mannerisms were, so I don't think we can just simply say it's Dinah's fault. And of course we've seen this in our modern society, have we not? Uh, so and so, so quote unquote, was asking for it, going to the wrong places, wearing the wrong clothes, doing the wrong things, carrying about in such a manner that her actions were seemingly enticing this type of response. But parents, it's not that simple. Where is Jacob in this? We're going to see Jacob in this chapter. But he's awful quiet in chapter 34. Awful quiet. If you've read ahead, you understand that his sons get pretty riled up about this. And what we already see in the first four verses comes to pass. Shechem spake to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. Before the end of this outline, we'll see that's exactly what he tries to do. And Jacob doesn't seemingly even respond. Where is daddy in this situation? And men, sadly, we don't get a pass because in this complex home that we've been following so far, there may be a multitude of mothers, but there's only one dad. There's only one father. There's only one leader of this household. The sons of Jacob are referred to as a whole, not the sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel and the sons of the concubine number one and sons of concubine number two. They are the sons of Jacob. And to me that implies that Jacob has the responsibility to lead his home. His sons don't respond in a godly way. And again, we don't put blame on Dinah, but should she have even been in a situation where she wasn't aware of the dangers that lies without? At the end of this chapter, Jacob seems aware of it. They far outnumber me. You cause for me to stink among the villages, among these tribes. They outnumber me. They'll come in and conquer me. They're a violent people. If you knew that, Daddy, why didn't you take better care to make sure Dinah knew? To make sure that your sons knew? before they go and do what we're about to see them go and do. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. We do know a little bit about how wicked this world is. Fathers, have we warned our children? Well, you know, it's like white noise to them. They hear me warn them about the world, and warn them about the dangers. They're not going to listen to me say it one more time. Look at your children, if they're in the room. Tell them one more time. Tell them one more time. If they choose to ignore you, there's nothing you can do. But right now, there's something you can do. You could tell them one more time. You can, as we uh, preached on, and this was supposed to follow that message, so I do apologize. It's uh, been about two and a half weeks. But when we talked about Christians and parenting, we talked about the responsibility this will refresh your memory. I read Psalm 22 that day instead of Proverbs 22. It was that message. And if you weren't here for it, go read Proverbs 22 tonight and understand, Mom, Dad, you have a responsibility. And mothers, if there's no father involved, you still have a responsibility to train them up in the way that they should go. 
Well, they don't behave and they don't listen. They're going in the way that they've been trained up to go. You've taught them that. Oh, preacher, how could you say such a thing? Well, your own confession admits that they're not where you want them to be. You've taken offense to this. Train them up in the way that they should go. If they don't behave in church, look in the mirror. If they don't behave in public, look in the mirror. Moms, dads, we don't get to Hillary Clinton this and blame the village. Jacob is silent. The only parent tied to every one of these children is silent in this chapter. That ought to be so deafening to us, our ears ring. Some time has passed between chapters here, and we can assume that not just from the appeal Dinah, who is Leah's youngest child, has from Shechem, which, based on the limitless levels of man's depravity, does not immediately mean that she was of age, but she's a little bit closer of age as she is now appealing uh, the opposite sex. But also from the fact that later in the chapter, Jacob's sons are strong enough to do some serious fighting. Uh, they're able to swing the sword. So some time has passed, but we don't have the benefit just yet of knowing how much time. It's likely, as we said last time, that Reuben was near 12 years old when they arrived. Uh, and based on the fighting and the, the victory that they win here, he's at least got to be closer to his 20s at this point. What happens to Dinah is not her fault in that she did something deplorable as a woman and brought this on herself. We have to wrap that firmly around our minds. Uh, I won't say that's never the case, but it's, we don't have enough evidence to say that indisputably it is the case here. And I think it would be horrible for us to just make that assumption. I don't attack Jacob as a father because he misled his children and then Dinah brought this on herself. I don't, I'm not trying to connect those dots for you. I just want you to understand that that's not the case that we're dealing with here. It's probably way more likely that when she went out to see the daughters of the land, she, as Mordecai warned Esther, blended in with the quote-unquote Persians. This was probably a common practice among these heathens in Canaan at that time, that they sought to take a wife and they took who they desired. They took who they preferred. Jacob's concern for his own protection, which we see, as I mentioned, at the end of this chapter, distracted him from protecting his family. Now, that probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense, to be distracted by the need to protect your family so much so that you don't actually protect your family. But God's people aren't called to protect their family in strength, in bullets, in weaponry. We're called to raise them. What was it that we read in Proverbs 22 that was absolutely crucial, absolutely critical? The most important thing Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. You want to arm your children with the world that they're growing up in? Teach them God's word. They will never be victorious over this world. You will never be victorious over this world in any other way but through Christ Jesus. You have to understand that because the longer it takes for us to accept that fact, the longer we will arrogantly struggle against repenting, struggle against the idea that we need a deliverer because we are more than capable in our minds of delivering ourselves.
We must be undone. We must be destroyed of our own strength. We must repent and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed that strength that we need, and he is not only the paramount strength, he is the only strength, the only hope that we have. What he had taught his children, uh, and remember, we're training them up one way or another, what he taught his children was that polygamy was okay in the eyes of God. We're getting right into it, aren't we? This is their dad. This is what he'd modeled for them thus far. Polygamy. More than one spouse. That's okay in the eyes of God. Many point in his own history, or <coughs> many point to his own history, uh, spoke the idea that man's ways were equal to God's and it would all work out in the end. We do this even today. Sins justifying uh, the ends, the means justifying the ends. But that's not so, beloved. If it were, why would he say, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We could live however we wanted to live if the ends justify the means. And we don't know specifically what spiritual instruction that he may have provided, but we do know from the uh, situation with his father Isaac that he was charged to lead spiritually to lead his home, and the first home he fled from at the instruction of his mother. This new household he silently seems to sit in, but still flee from his responsibility, at least up to this point. Our spiritual instruction to our children must address those pitfalls and snares that we have experienced in our own lives. This is why our testimony is so important. If, if you as a young person had trouble with alcohol and drugs, rest assured you're going to have at least one child that probably does too. You keep that testimony guarded and close to your heart and never share it with them, they'll have no idea what to do when it falls upon them. Continue to convince your children that you've never lied, that you've never stolen, that you've never killed. And then when that comes upon them one day, they will have no idea what to do in that situation because they, as all of us in here, I'm sure, only ever had perfect parents. The fact of the matter is none are sinless. None are perfect. And though we look at our testimonies from a, a, a perspective of broken glass, it is a tapestry weaved together with the blood of Christ Jesus. It is our story. Uh, how often do we see Paul reference Saul? How often does he tell us that he was the chief of sinners? How often does he himself remind us over and over again where he came from and where his strength resides? I think until we get to the point where we're unashamed of who we once were, confessing Jesus Christ openly and boldly, we're failing at our witnessing, at our evangelism. We're sharing at our ability, or, or failing rather, at our ability to connect with other human beings. Why is it that the greatest argument the world can come up with is that we're hypocrites? It's because we are. We put up this false front that we have no sin, and they can't reach that pedestal. Because think about what we're sharing when we're sharing the gospel with them. You are a sinner. You need Christ Jesus. I am no longer a sinner. I now have Christ Jesus. And now they're forced to look up to us with no means of connection. But who was the good neighbor? Was it not the Samaritan? 
who went to the other side of the road where the wounded was, who used his own garments to bind the wounds, who used his own horse to haul in this one who needed help, who brought him to the inn, paid for his stay, and told the, the innkeeper he would come back and pay what was owed when he returned. The Samaritan never elevated himself above the Levite, the priest, that had continued along the other side of the road. He never elevated himself in the story the Lord told there to that lawyer. He never elevated himself above the one he had compassion on. We don't even know his name. So where are we at with this? Because to successfully witness or hope to win souls, as Spurgeon puts it, though we are more than conquerors, that is true. Our witnessing and our testimony needs to be as sinners saved by grace. I understand where you are. I understand what you are struggling with because I've been there. That needs to be how we witness. I can preach a sermon from this pulpit and I'm already six inches higher than everyone. But for me to actually witness to someone, what's the first thing you usually hear me say? I may have rivaled Paul as the chief of sinners. I was a thief. I was a Catholic. I was a liar. Had the Lord not stopped me, I'd have probably been a murderer. And it's only by God's grace that I am where I am. That is the testimony each of us who are born again in this room has. If you have ever sold it with more gold lace, more fluff, you are indeed a liar. So now you're blessed with the opportunity to go back to those individuals and say, by the way, I'm a liar. I'm a sinner, saved by grace. That's our testimony. That saved by grace part is not an insult. That saved by grace part of our testimony is election. It is paramount to the sovereignty of God himself. That saved by grace part is not an insult. In fact, it ought to be our last name, worn with pride. Certainly can't wear the first part, sinner with pride but in the first Adam we inherited that too this is what Jacob needed to deliver to his children I didn't always do everything the right way but God for his own reason still had mercy upon me if we overlook it in our own teaching we are giving it an unspoken pat as an unspoken past to our children can an adopted child not learn something of our Heavenly Father by seeing the adoption process, by understanding how he got to where he is, by understanding there's some greater power? Can a child out of wedlock not greatly benefit from hearing God's mercy toward his mother? Can a parent who lost their spouse not teach their children the sovereignty of God in a lesson of how time is but a vapor? Literally everything that happens around us everything we've experienced in the past month we can point to God can we not we may not know the why we not understand the how but we can know that it is him and we can know that he is working all these things out according to his will for our own good that if he had begun it he will also be faithful to finish it don't overcomplicate it beloved no one has an inherent perfect understanding of these things 
because all are sinners. Some are saved by grace. Jacob had a very noble calling. Did he convey that to his children? Did he talk about what took place with him and Esau as younger men? Not children, but younger men. Did he explain to them that they were different from the Canaanites and that God was that difference? I'm afraid that is probably what the case is here. That Dinah didn't understand that she was different than the Canaanites. Dinah, who'd spent most of her life as a nomad up to this point, was probably like most children that age, even today, just looking for a way to fit in. Just looking for a way to fit in with the daughters of the land. What do teenagers usually do when they try to fit in? I'm not actually asking for answers because I don't know where we'd all go with that. But when teenagers usually try to fit in, it usually means they blend in. They disappear into the crowd. I've yet to meet a teenager that says, I want to make friends, so I'm just going to go out there and be myself. I'm going to be the loudest, best version of myself, and those who can't handle it are just not meant to be my friends. That's not what a teenager says. It's not what I said as a teenager. What I said as a teenager was that I will do whatever I have to do to blend in with that good crowd, to blend in uh, (laughs) at some point with any crowd, whatever it takes. I think it's probably the same, we'll find the same is true for all of us. And I'm afraid that's probably what the case was with Dinah. Daddy never told her she was special. Daddy never told her about the promised seed, about the blessing of Isaac that had been passed to her father that would one day be passed on toward one of his children. Maybe Daddy never conveyed the importance of coming back because Canaan was the promised land. This isn't something they didn't know. They absolutely did know. They knew that there was a great inheritance. Did he ever tell Dinah about that? You don't need to blend in with the Canaanites. You have everything that you need. Remember our our last Wednesday lesson that we did together? Jacob said that. I have everything. I have everything. But did he go home that night after talking to Uncle Esau and tell his children, I, your father, thanks to Jehovah have everything and you have everything you're special you're unique you're not just some run-of-the-mill canaanite child you could be a blessing unto them but you're not them this isn't an establishing of you're better than them this is an establishing of you are not them did he explain the dangers of the fruit of the land or had he committed that education to the village The village taught Dinah something that day. Here's how marriage works. First, they're going to have sex with you. Whether you want it or not, this is what the village taught Dinah. It doesn't start with bringing out a dowry for daddy. doesn't start with roses and chocolate. doesn't start with a one-week anniversary, one-month anniversary, six-month anniversary. I think we did that like 30 years ago. No, it starts with perhaps unwanted sex. Dinah was defiled. I don't want you to take that lightly. Dinah was defiled. This is what our scripture says. She received more than she was expecting. Maybe because she was untrained, unwarned. Adam, by the way, was the originator of that pedagogy or teaching method. 
It did not work out for his house either. The village is not a good teacher. The serpents are not to be trusted. Parents, listen to me now. Our children are exceptionally tempting to those of this world. And this is how Dinah would have appeared to them as well. Exceptionally tempting. She's strange fruit to those young men. She's somebody who's never been here before. Think of the blessing that would be for someone with a bad reputation. She doesn't know my past. She doesn't know my history. What young man will not be tempted by a young Baptist girl, even today, saved or unsaved? And yeah, we know the doctrinal difference, but the world doesn't care. What young man won't be tempted by a young Baptist girl that has been taught submissiveness and kindness? What young woman would love to be out with a young Baptist man, saved or unsaved, who knows how to be respectful, but in their eyes has some naivety to them or can be influenced into submission? It is a greater responsibility to steward children in any age. Do not continue to pacify them. Lead them. Train them. Love them enough to discipline them. Or they will not be able to discipline themselves when truly difficult temptations present themselves. Every young person is going to be convinced they can handle things. I've met some 80-year-olds that are also convinced they can handle just about everything. They can look out for themselves. It is up to us to make sure they actually can it's up to us to make sure we point them to the true strength, which is the scriptures that points to God. It's up to us to actually equip them with the armor. To actually tell them what the armor's for. To warn them of the lion that roars about, seeking to devour. To warn them of the serpent that will sneak in unaware. Point them to God. We... Uh, we turn, point them to the God that we turn to all the time, so when the heat is up, they will know to flee unto him. Think of Joseph, who's not yet born, and seemingly will be the only child of Jacob that flees from temptation. The situation for Dinah, according to our text, did have a root of love, according to verse 3, though the physical events were not in godly order. The tradition of the time was that parents would arrange the marriage, so from Shechem's perspective, even the forcefulness of things would not have seemed out of line. This can also be seen in the verses that follow, in that Hamor, his father, does not even offer an apology or an explanation of the situation. And we'll read that in just a moment. It was just simply how the world worked. It was basically business as usual for the world. They didn't have a problem with it. That doesn't make it right. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is a God that does not care for man's traditions. Oh, even Baptists hate sermons that talk about men's traditions. 
you ought to know God has no respect unto men's traditions. Be ye holy, for he is holy. He's not going to give one wood nickel for every excuse you might present unto him for the things you partake in because men did it first or because everyone else was doing it. Consider the next section of Genesis 34, and we'll, go verse, uh, we'll read verse 5 through verse 17. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. So far, there may be a little pronoun confusion because of where I chose to break things up. Uh, so let me go back a minute. Jacob heard, uh, he heard of his daughter's defilement. He heard who defiled his daughter. If we go back to verse 4, And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. Um, and Hamor is coming unto Jacob here in a moment. But we're being told here that Jacob already knew what had happened. And we're also being told that because his sons were with his cattle in the field, Jacob held his peace until they were come. And that particular fact, I haven't found a commentator that can explain it. Why would he wait until his boys were in the house to settle this or to handle this or to discuss this? And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved or vexed or hurting. And they were very wroth, which I think we know what that means, but uh, Strong's defines this word as incensed or furious. They were very incensed or very furious because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. So we already have in our text that they knew this thing wasn't to be done. Jacob's sons knew this was not a practice to be performed. Where did they learn that? Why didn't Dinah know? Did Dinah know? And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. Um, I want to stop there for a minute. We won't read it tonight, but if you read through the rest of this chapter uh, on your own time, uh, you'll see a very different presentation that was made by Shechem and Hamor to their people. Um, he's presenting to Jacob that they'll, they'll all coexist and they'll have access to all the land, but they go back and present to their people that we'll have their stuff, is essentially how he says it. And Shechem said, Shechem said unto Dinah's father Jacob, and unto her brethren, let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. Uh, I want to interrupt again. It's really interesting how many times Jacob finds himself in this situation. Uh, it's very similar with Laban. Uh, and he was willing to give everything he could possibly give to Esau. It's very, very interesting how many times God's man, Israel, Jacob himself, finds himself in a position where someone is pleading with him to enter into a usury or an allegiance or a trust, uh, and they'll give anything they got to give. Beloved, that's, that's Satan revealing himself in this text for us. Whatever the cost... Whatever I got to do, just make this barter with me. Make this trade with me. Make this agreement with me. Enter into this thing. When God's word says, come out from among them, 
Be ye separate, and I will be a father unto thee. Satan's greatest plea is, I will give you everything you can think of. You name the price, and I will pay it out over time. It's interesting, if you go and listen to some interviews of, I think Bob Dylan's one of them, but there's a lot of musicians and actors who have come right out and said they've sold their souls to the devil for fame and success. And if you actually listen to it and pay a little attention to the career, there was a sharp turn at some point in most of their careers when the sky was the limit. They sold out to the devil. They took the deal. Beloved, why would we think for a second the devil's not still doing that today? Why would we think for a second that he somehow ran out of money, ran out of offerings, ran out of enticements? How many of you have experienced the devil coming after you in the past week? As I warned you would on Sunday. Beloved, it's not because of wickedness in your life. It's the opposite. The devil goes after people who have God in their lives. He goes after people who are on the cusp of mighty realizations. Or if he hasn't been after you yet and you come this weekend and find yourself to be blessed, he'll be all over you next week. He doesn't want that. He doesn't like that. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully. That's your first clue as to how the rest of this chapter will go. And they said, Because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised. For that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you. If ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give, uh, then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we'll, we will become one people. But if ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter, and we will be gone. If Jacob didn't see the dangers around his family before this event, it surely has revealed itself now. Somebody else has come to the door offering anything, anything Jacob wants for one thing. One thing. When the enemy values one thing that much, we ought to rise up and take notice, beloved. And honestly, we'll spend more time on this in the latter half of this chapter in the next outline. But this is the first time Babylon really reveals itself to still be turning. Because this is the same thing the Roman Catholic Church did at the turn of the century, at the turn of the millennia, to continue to adopt and adopt and adopt and buy in. Listen to what the sons do. They didn't just say, if you do this thing or do that thing, and they didn't just say, for this reason or that reason, they used the phrase, for that were a reproach unto us. They are introducing religion to the Canaanites. They are saying it's offensive to us. It's against what we believe. You should be circumcised and we'll let you in. Beloved, these men were not led well by their father. He did not point to God nearly enough for these young men. And we'll spend more time on that next time. What a sad place for a parent to be in. His daughter has been raped. His sons are now lying unto the village, seeking to adopt them into some new form of religion. 
And we can all see the ungodliness after Satan has played his hand. Oh, if we were to just keep reading and trusting the Bible, it warns us of these things before we fall into the snare, before we fall into the ditch, before we've been pulled into the trap. Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-11, through 11, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto uh, his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's something Paul lays out very, very well in the New Testament. And Lord willing, when we get to study in Acts, uh, unless the Lord comes first, we'll see it a little bit more clearly. But it's the interdependency of the church member to member. That uh, joints fitly together that one supplieth another and we see the increase in the grace and the love profoundly being multiplied from one brother to another and we see the same thing referenced here by simon peter when he talks about the younger being submissive when he talks about humility he's talking about the fact that we are charged with protecting our brother am i my brother's keeper yes you most definitely are this young one here hasn't seen what Steve has seen, what Clark has seen, what Isaac has seen. Those two young ladies there haven't seen what Sharon and Marsha and Gail have seen. We need one another because we will fall into traps if left to our own understanding. The boys were hurting. The boys were furious over what had happened to their sister because he had wrought folly or villainy is how that word is translated, in Israel, lying with their sister. Oh, if Jacob had but one time talked to them about how to handle their anger, how to handle their wrath, how to handle such situations. Sure, Jacob probably didn't have a whole lot of other people around him getting raped to use as an example. But there was the situation with Esau a few years back, the situation with Laban a few years back, he had a lot of opportunities to show his children how to handle the situation the right way. And here's the miracle, parents. Even if you handle it the wrong way, when you go through it, you have the ability to point them to the right way with that example. Ain't life funny. Their anger gives evidence that Jacob's home had an understanding of this to be sinful and wrong, as we said as we were reading through it. That's a credit to their upbringing, but how had they been taught to handle their emotion? with what is going on in Florida. One of the first things Sister Cassie ordered were some books and some activities to help the kids handle their emotion. Moms are typically pretty good at that. Me as a dad, never even thought about that. Never even crossed my mind. 
I prayed for those children. I hurt for those children, but never even crossed my mind that there would be a uh, overwhelming amount of emotion that they'd all have to deal with and that they're likely to not deal with it the same way. Moms are kind of important. Possibly the most appalling part of this for me as a father myself is Hamor's interest in persuading them with the future prosperity of their families and communities. I, I like to try to put myself in the context of what we're studying, and I have real trouble with this one. I can't imagine the father of someone who raped my daughter sitting in my living room telling me that not only is it okay, but it's about to be profitable for everyone. Not sure how I'd handle that. He even suggests that this is something that should continue to happen. He says, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughter unto you, our daughters unto you, and ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. I kind of can't help but think about Lot here. Is this what they sold him when he began to sit at the gate? This will be profitable unto you, you righteous lot. Sit at the gate. Do business with us. Make a little money. We'll give you whatever we got to give you to have you sit at this important position, this important place in our town. Sadly, this appeal to the economical and profit-driven side of sin is very, very common in the world today. It's probably one of Satan's most successful tactics. Man always finds himself in need of money. Who invented money, by the way? Man always finds himself in desperate need of that which he's already created. His imaginations are only evil continually. We set up this system. We set up the most desperate need for it. And we are slave to it. And further and further and further we go when we take on trust or debt get a line of credit, further and further and further we go. If the world can get us to invest or buy into this type of transaction, we are then found with vested interest, shared interest. They gain a little, we gain a little. A downward spiral, spiral in which fresh air and eventually even daylight is scarce. Think of what's really being proposed to Jacob. Essentially, Dinah was to be treated as a harlot in a transaction for future prosperity. Why would the devil want one of Jacob's kids? Because one of them's going to be the promised seed. The promised lineage is going to spring forth from one of them. I won't tell you again who it is. I told you a few months back, um, but we'll see who remembers when we get there. But one of them, the devil knows one of them. The devil can plainly see he's got Esau right where he wants him. Uh, and he saw, as he saw, he saw this. He saw Jacob flee out of there 20, 30 years ago. He got a pretty good idea what took place. And then Jacob goes and has babies with half of Laban's household. And now he's got it down to what, 10? One of them, 11. One of them is probably going to be the promised seat. I mean, I really want you to just sit down in the war room with the devil for a minute. If I move this piece here toward Dinah, if I defile her and rile up these others, well, I got about 30% of them already. 30% of them. That's pretty good with one fell swoop. 
Devil knows what he's doing. And this was early. Fat, flat, fast forward now another six, 7,000 years where we are. Think he doesn't know how to play you? Think he doesn't know how to persuade you? Control you at times? I know that we're more than conquerors if we're born again. But there's quite a few in our lives that aren't. Quite a few in our lives that are very easily susceptible, easily persuaded. And sadly, they got our heartstrings, don't they? Oh, mama. Oh, daddy. I got to have this. Got to do this. You can ignore the church for a minute. Ignore that meeting this weekend. I need you. What if Nolan needs babysat on Saturday? We're filled with fear. Consumed by other things other than God. All of us. What will I do if one of my kids are sick? You probably won't see Rebecca this weekend, depending on which one it is. I'm going to be here. Because I don't miss church. I mean, unless I absolutely can't help it. And then I cheat and I stream it for y'all. So I'm still at home, but I'm still here. But that's not the case for all of us. There are some that miss for less than what it will cost you to miss. We're running out of time. That's not even true. We're not running out of time. We've always had the same amount of time, but we're coming to the end of it. We're coming to the end of it. The sons of Jacob seem to take lead here. Not likely all of them, but mostly the older brothers, and we'll get into that in the next outline. But as we see these boys scheming and plotting, we start to understand again what they've learned from Daddy. Train them up in the way that they should go. But if you don't train them the way they should go, you have already taught them the way they're going to go. Here they are, plotting, scheming, persuading the Canaanites to go ahead and get circumcised. Persuading them that it's a religious concern, that you're not circumcised and therefore we can't do this. But you do this, then we're going to be okay. This is what we saw Jacob do. This is what we saw Rebecca do. Scheming, however, is a common trait of all of us. Abraham had worked out a plan to say Sarah was his only his sister before they even left Ur the Chaldees. I'm not sure I understand. Not surprised that you don't. Their request might seem fair to us. Might even appear godly to some who will listen to this. Catholics still do it. And a lot of the harlot daughters do very similar things. I was talking to somebody, maybe even been somebody here. I've been in a lot of places in the last few weeks, but we were talking about how to have a Catholic wedding. All you got to do is convert. Seems simple enough. Do you want to have a wedding in a majestic, beautiful cathedral? Most of them cost millions of dollars to... Uh, to keep up, by the way, even the one you all were in when my grandmother was buried last year. You want to have a wedding there? All you got to do is convert. It seems like nothing to us, but it's definitely something to the devil. It's definitely something to the one making the barter. For those of us who know what is coming, it might even seem justifiable considering what happened to Dinah and the fact that Shechem, Hamor, nor anyone in the community seemed remorseful over what had happened to their sister. If you know what these two boys are about to do, 
And they may have had help from uh, some of the other siblings, but I, there are reasons to assume the two of them didn't. Uh, and of those two, one of them is the promised seed. It might even see justifiable. Dinah was defiled. Dinah was raped. Shouldn't there be blood spilt? Shouldn't there be revenge? Shouldn't vengeance be wrung out in Canaan to the point where it echoed amongst the, the deserts and the hills that God is with Jacob's people? Is that how God would have his people to act? Did God give instruction for these to be circumcised? Did God give instruction for them to seek vengeance? Did he give instruction to Jacob or Jacob's sons to indoctrinate these tribes by having them be circumcised? Some things to consider. There are things that still reflect in our lives today. Even though we don't talk about circumcision and things of that nature, there are still things we just give into because that's the way everybody else does it. That's how the world handles business. And after all, we have to live in the world. Uh, come out from among them, be ye separate, is still one of my favorite verses for the record. And for that very reason, I don't think he would instruct and inspire his man to write those words if they didn't apply. Come out from among them, even this hour. You come out from among some of that in April is way easier than waiting until December come out from these things who cares how the world does it they aren't victorious they aren't conquerors and we are very appetizing to them beloved beware 